Welcome to Four Quarter Lives. I'm Aviva Wittenberg-Cox, and I'm exploring how longer lives impact everything, from careers and relationships to the very shape of our lives. Truth is, you're likely to live a lot longer than you think. I talk with a wide range of experts and academics, as well as individuals designing and redesigning their own third quarters, the years from 50 to 75. Instead of recreation, they're thinking recreation. What can we learn from their pioneering roadmaps through life? Paul Irving is the archetype of the stories that Four Quarter Lives would like to share. First, he's a role model of third quarter reinventions. He went back to school to do Harvard's Advanced Leadership Program, as I have, but he was there in its early days after a successful 35-year career in the law. Post-ALI, he shifted to lead one of the foremost longevity think tanks, the Milken Institute Center for the Future of Aging, where he has spent a happy and purposeful 13 years engaging with an entirely new world. Paul shares the impact his late education had on his life. Then we explore how the longevity topic has exploded in the time he's been at Milken from knocking on doors that wouldn't answer to being awarded red carpets and awards around the globe. He gives us today's state of play and look forward to what's next and what you may want to do about it. Welcome, Paul Irving, to Four Quarter Lives. Delighted to have you with us. Thank you, Aviva. Pleasure to be with you. One of the reasons I wanted to really launch with you is that you are one of the rare sort of crossovers between the two kinds of interviews that I'm trying to do is one, people who are really redesigning the third quarter of their lives and going to these new kinds of programs and university for the older cohorts, we might say, and also that you are now an expert. You have become one of the leading experts in the whole area of longevity. So I'm giving you two hats, both role model and expert. But let me start with the ALI story. Why did you decide to, you were among the very first cohorts of Harvard's Advanced Leadership Initiative. I think you were the second promotion. Is that right? I, I was in the 2010 cohort, the second cohort. 09 was the first. So... Tell us, why did you go? Who were you when you went? And what impact did it have? So part of the reason I went was serendipity, as true is with so many of the things in life that end up shaping who we are. I was a lawyer for more than three decades. I did mergers and acquisitions work and corporate finance work in a large law firm. I ended up as the CEO of that firm for a number of years. And as I was getting to the end of my term, we had terms in our in our firm, actually, it was the end of my second term. And somehow, I just felt that I wanted to do something different. You know, I could have, I suppose, done the same thing or spent more time playing golf. I don't play golf. Um, <laughs> you could have taken it up like some people. <laughs> right. But I felt that something was was missing in, in my life and I wasn't sure what it was and I wasn't sure how to capture it. And what happened was, again, what, how this, old were you then? What, what age? I was, was I was in my late 50s then. Yep. So I think I was, I was 57, 58 when kind of the itch started. And one of my partners, one of my one of my good friends, was on the board of the Kennedy School at Harvard. She had been back for a meeting of, of that board, and interestingly, one of the people who's now become a very good a friend of mine, a woman named uh, named Phyllis Siegel, was also on on that board. And Phyllis was talking about this new program at Harvard that they were experimenting with in 2009 that included people like Charlie Bolden, a general and later the head of NASA, and various others. And my partner said, 
wow, you know, Paul Irving would be terrific for that. He's kind of got this socially conscious itch and he wants to change the world in whatever naive ways he wants to change the world. And he's a pretty good guy. Maybe he should think about this. And that led to a conversation with Roosevelt Cantor, who, as you know, Aviva was the, was the founder of the program at Harvard, prominent professor at Harvard Business School. And several months later, I found myself hanging out in, Camber- in, in Cambridge in freezing, in freezing weather. Yeah, so there, there it was. That's true. It's a strange program that starts in January and runs through to December. So you arrive not at that famed fall of the year, but that's exact, right that's into exactly. Boston's worst month. And for a California boy, you know, as much as I, as much as I like clam chowder, and as much as I enjoy, by the way, going to baseball at Fenway, which I think is one of the great parks in in, in America, uh, trudging through snow uh, with the wind blowing over the Charles was a little bit of an experience. <laughs> So tell us, was it worth it? What impact did it have? How do you look back now on the pivot that it had you make? Well, I should ask the question back of you since you're going through it currently, but it was fantastic. It was really wonderful opportunity. Some people say that 18-year-olds aren't really aren't ready for college and in many ways don't deserve the experience. They might enjoy more spending some time in the workforce and then coming back to it. It was so much fun being back in school in in a new way and in a sense without the pressure of performance and without the expectations as to about what it might lead to in terms of career and all the rest. It was a really interesting cohort of people, all of whom shared this kind of need and desire to find new things, to serve in new ways and to cross over their business and academic and policy careers into something new. It was a great opportunity to interact with faculty oftentimes uh, on a peer level. And you're still in touch faculty. with, you're still in touch with your many, cohort. many. I'm still in touch with, with my cohort. We get together every month by now by video. We, we did by phone in, in the past. And actually, we're going to be together in Baton Rouge and, and New Orleans in October. So we've kept up those relationships. And I would also say, I think the real revelation, I kind of expected that this would be an interesting group of people. It was. And I knew the talent on the, on the Harvard faculty, obviously extraordinary. The kind of unexpected and really particularly wonderful aspect of it was the relationship with students. I, I developed really strong relationships with really amazing young people who I've kept up with over, over the years in mentorship roles, in just friendship roles. And some people would say when I was at Harvard that the smartest people at Harvard University were the undergrads. And I'm, I think that that's probably right. But I, I ran into so many interesting, passionate young people that just gave me hope for the future and and for the potential of intergenerational connection and collaboration. So I've got nothing but positive things to say about it, except maybe the one thing we'll maybe we'll talk about it a little more later is, is that uh, people like you and I have this opportunity and it should be available to so many more people. And, um, and it's just beginning. It's coming. It's coming. But it's really just the, that's, just that's the beginning. So. Yeah. So. Tell me one more question on when you look at your cohort. What is this itch that people have to at this time of life? Is it very particular to a small group? Is it something you now think of as more generalized, that is just a predictable phase and age of life need? Is it Maslow well, that we're getting to the top of the hierarchy? Or, or Maslow or Eric Erickson, who famously defined uh, generativity, you know, this, this notion yep. that as we age, 
potentially part of our parental instinct, but very much uh, extended to people throughout society, that we have this inclination to pay forward, pass down, to to mentor, to assume new roles. So I think I think that's part of it. Sometimes I thought part of it might be generational that this was this kind of generation of people i'm 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 70 now you know who grew up in the in the 60s and early early 70s during the vietnam war civil rights movement and uh, modern women's movement etc et and who maybe had more of an inclination toward change and activism than than might otherwise have been the case but i think really in the research i've done later and in, in the work I've done later, I've really concluded that everybody seeks purpose in their life. And maybe that this stage of life is is a time in which we recognize the purpose is, is particularly important, you know, that it's a purpose stage of life. We've accomplished so many things. We've lived through so many challenges and, and joy and pain and families and work and, and, all the re- and all the rest. And as we recognize that there are fewer years ahead than there are behind, the meaning and purpose of those years becomes more important than, than ever. So I think that somehow this later stage educational opportunity plays on all those inclinations and plays, I think, in a very important way. It's why I've become such an advocate for lifelong learning. I just, I think that Things happen in academic environments. Openness happens and challenge happens to one's thinking. And so just being repotted in a place as rich, obviously, as, as Harvard University with all of, all of its talent and all of its ideas and sparks those inclinations and I think leads to really interesting outcomes. And it's led to interesting outcomes for people in my cohort. I'm sure that will be the case for years as well. So let's let's see what you repotted into. Did you expect to become the head of the Milken Institute Center for the Future of Aging when after three and a half decades as a lawyer? Uh, who did that surprise most? What did, what did, what your, what did your wife say? <laughs> she just rolled, yeah, my wife stayed with me for 52 years. She, she, she just called, rolled her eyes and she said, you again, you know? So, uh, you know, so I, I think Look, look, no, and I, I use the word serendipity, and I'll probably use use it again. Um, none of where I am now was planned. And in fact, interestingly, I had kind of a notion when I was there. A friend of mine was at that time the dean of the Anderson School of Business at UCLA, and she and I had talked about I was always interested in social finance, the notion that somehow one could achieve both market returns uh, on investment and social returns. This was Frankly, before a lot of the current conversation on ESG, I actually wrote something for the Ford Foundation years ago on community investing, the notion that double bottom lines and triple bottom lines were possible. So she and I had actually talked about starting an initiative at UCLA Business School focused on social finance and social entrepreneurship. But I I ended up being initially approached by one of my former partners and then another friend who knew Mike Milken, and, and he started a conversation with me. And he confronted one of my biases, which is that a lot of us have an inclination to kind of start something new and to create our own thing. And I think that that, uh, that fragmentation oftentimes detracts from effectiveness. That if we, yeah. if we focus more on collaboration, more on building existing, you know, existing institutions, more on investment in kind of the capital needed to build social infrastructure that we'd actually which accomplish more good. And he actually confronted me on that. He said... He said, why which go is, Which is now a huge part of the Harvard ALI exactly. program now, and yeah. certainly Rosabeth's 
yeah, and, and she, and I think she's right. She's right about it. So, so he kind of confronted me and said, "Why in the world do you need to go start something new when we have this existing infrastructure with offices in various places around the world and with existing convening capacity and research capacity? You can do what you want here." And I said, if after a little bit of conversation, okay, let's do it. So you went to the Milken Institute initially to start a social entrepreneurship law? No, actually, I, I initially started, started the president <laughs> of, the, of the Milken Institute. So I had no particular interest or background in anything having to do with aging. I can tell you that uh, certainly social finance was something that the Institute was already working on and that I knew and that I was intrigued by. And what happened is I'd love to tell you that my work in aging was the product of some long-held design <laughs> and careful planning and thought. That's okay. We're all Aging. We're all experts at aging, right? Right. Absolutely. But absolutely to the contrary. What, what happened was, I'll, I'll tell you the truth. Don't tell anybody else. So here's, here's what happened. I started the new job. I do what one does when one is hired in a senior position in a new organization. I do a listening tour, right? And I'm having coffee with the young people and I'm hearing what people like about their jobs and don't like about their jobs and what they, what programs they think are working and aren't working and what research they're doing and not doing. And the guy was a guy at that time who was the head of our development group. It's a public charity came, uh, comes running into my office one day and he says, one of our large foundation sponsors is interested in doing a project, a media friendly project on the impacts of population aging in the United States. And I said to him, as I would have said in my law practice running my law firm, I assume you told them, thank you so much. We'd love to help you find the right place to do it. We have no expertise in this area. Thanks, but no thanks. It'd be mission creep for us. It'd be, it'd be something we don't do. And he said, as so many development people might say, oh, no, I told them we'd love to do it. And then he said, and Paul, you're aging. I thought, <laughs> he literally said that to me. He's a funny guy, still a friend of mine. He said, Paul, you're aging. I thought maybe you'd like to kind of sink this through. And I had no, I was in a panic. And I knew at this point, kind of the project was, was in, the, in the door. I had no idea what to do. I had, I had no idea who to call. So I ended up calling, interestingly, my dear, dear friend, Mark Friedman, who is the founder and, and CEO of what was at Encore, that point called yeah. now called, now called Encore.org. I sat at Mark, Mark's board for many years. You know, I chaired Mark's board. And I said to Mark, because Mark does an awful lot about aging and all of the implications, both both challenging and positive. And he said, well, you should call Laura Carsonson at Stanford, who runs the Stanford Longevity Center. And he introduced me to, to uh, Laura. And then he said, you should call Linda Freed, who's the dean of the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia. And we ended up putting together this cohort of experts that, that kind of went on and on. And we... Our first project was a project called Best Cities for Successful Aging, which was a data-driven analysis of U.S. metros and their capacity for aging. It was the first time that public data had ever been used. In this methodology that we created, maybe one more minute on it, our, our notion was that we wanted to figure out a way to challenge public leaders to change their thinking infrastructure and urban environments to basically enable what we defined as, as successful aging in their communities. So we thought of what works, what has motivated leaders. We thought of U.S. News and World Report for colleges, which, of course, university presidents all say that they hate and they're all incredibly reflexive to. Yeah, and, tied, and tied to it. So we said to ourselves, well, you know, civic leaders are also type A's, just like university leaders. They're competitive. They want their 
tenures in office and they want their communities to be seen as successful. So let's create the same thing. We'll create a ranking system, which is exactly what we did. And it accomplished exactly what we wanted it to accomplish. We put out the first ranking system and we literally had city managers. It was oftentimes not their boss, but city managers calling us saying, you know, we were just ranked number 80 and, and the town 50 miles away was was ranked number 47. We want to beat the next time. Can you, what can do we you have help to us do? think, think that us. through? Yep. So anyway, Fantastic. so that's, that's how the aging work started. And it kind of Fantastic. took off from there. I've just been fascinated by the topic. And I, and I still think, maybe naively, you know, we all, we all see things through our own prism, but that, that the impacts of population aging will have as significant effect on life in and around the world, throughout the world, and every institution, maybe second only to climate change, is the most important phenomenon that humanity will face in the, in the decades to come. So I just think it's extraordinarily important and still, I think, under-discussed and under-confronted challenge. Absolutely. So you've been there 13 years. You've built the Institute into one of the foremost think tanks on the topic. But I'm just curious from this vantage point, so it's still not recognized as you would like it, but what has changed over those 13 years? What has been, what have you seen as the evolution of the subject? Where did you start and where are we now? Well, I mean, the good thing is, is I see people like Aviva Wittenberg-Cox, who, <laughs> were, who were leaders on, for example, issues around women, women at work now, fascinated by, the, by this topic. And in a sense, you're a metaphor for that happening in many, many places, in many ways. When I started this work, I say to people, I literally could have stood outside my office door with a sandwich board saying, we'll speak, write, do research for food. And not one person would have given me the time, the time of day. And now I get, you know, two or three or four calls from, from people around the world, from academic institutions, from companies from policy leaders, from folks in media, et cetera, really interested in this topic. So I think things have changed, but we're still in very, very early innings. What we recognize, you know this as well as I, you probably know it better better than I, you're, you're an expert in it. What we know is we need to change the global workforce, right? To accommodate not just older workers, but intergenerational workforces with all both the challenges and the wonderful opportunities that that creates to capitalize on the skills and talents, both of young people and, and old people in, in new ways. Uh, we know that academic institutions, Aviva, if I recall correctly, you know, Harvard University opened its doors in 1636. At that point, it made immense sense. And by the way, its, its design has informed the educational design of institutions, certainly across the United States. This was true of Oxford and Cambridge and other places as well, yeah. old institutions in, in Bologna. It made an awful lot of sense to design curricula around populations of teenagers and people in their 20s when average longevity in, in the world was 30 or so. And by the way, of course, you can also imagine that those institutions we know were designed principally by men and certainly in the United States but by, by white men. So we have thankfully begun to come to the recognition that the curricula and the plans and designs and norms in those, in those institutions should be adapted to recognize the contributions of more than 50% of our population, obviously not just women, but now people of color and people from different backgrounds. But we still really haven't figured out a way to integrate aging and older adults in not only into curriculum, but into the population of 
student bodies, and frankly, even faculty bodies. I'll be giving a speech quite soon to the National Organization of Emeritus Faculty and, and University Administrators. And it's amazing how many incredibly talented faculty members still just don't know what to do when they're retired. They feel useless. They don't have a sense of how they can put their skills and talents and knowledge and wisdom to work. So companies, academic institutions, policy institutions, you you name it, it's all got to change. Media, all got to change. I'm fascinated by your ranking of climate change as sort of the dominant and aging right behind it as sort of the two big shifts we got to get our mind around. Is that the way you think anybody else is thinking now? Thankfully, we are way too late and, and, and still with not enough energy, creativity, innovation, we are increasingly understanding the implications of climate change. We need to get through the politics and we need to really have the kind of commitment that we had at the end of the Second you're speak, World War. You're speaking to me from 105 degree California. I'm, I'm speaking from a very hot California right now. So I think we are way behind the, the ball on, on population aging. And the interesting thing, and you and I both come from cultures which has ha- experienced this fairly slowly. So what we know is the is the population of pe- people 60 plus will about double by, by mid-century. What we know is that birth rates across the world, and certainly in developed countries in the global north, are well below replacement rate. And what we see is the ra- a rapid change in birth rates in the global south, in, develop- in developing countries as the rights of women emerge, as inf- infant mortality rates drop, et-, et cetera. So this phenomenon that we've experienced certainly in the United States, but even much more rapidly in Europe and in much of much of Asia, will also occur, is occurring now in Latin America, for example, it will occur in sub-Saharan Africa in times to come, and will occur much more rapidly. It's taken a long time for the population to age in, in the UK, in Spain, in Italy, in Greece, etc. It will happen much more rapidly in Brazil, and ultimately, it will happen much more rapidly in India. It's already, as we know, very much in happened China, in, yeah. in the first super-age society in the world in Japan and in Korea, and very much in, in China, the ill-conceived one-child one child policy, policy yeah. has now paid off. And the interesting thing is, you know it's reversed, the one-child the one policy, but culture has changed. You and I, by the way, I we, know. Women have changed, too. Women, women have changed. You, you and, and I men have not that, changed quite as fast, I might that's, know. That's, that's true. And we, we, need to, we need to move my, my gender much more quickly. But you, you and I have both talked about the fact that we're relatively new grandparents, right? Uh, and, and our children, with one child each, you have, you have two kids with, with one. And I have one kid with one. They're probably outliers in their social groups. And if you kind of think back a generation or, or two when people would have had, you know, between two and three kids per heterosexual couple yeah. at, yeah, at, at that, at that point. So what we, the population Venn diagram has turned from a, a, pure, a pyramid to a cylinder and soon to a reverse pyramid. And what that means, again, is in the interests of institutions of, of all types, change, fairly radical change has to occur. And I think people never understand that we've never experienced this as a species. This is like a complete new experiment. And I don't think people really have that at all 
in mind how radical this is. Com- completely un- unprecedented for, for all of human history. Average lifespans were about the same. And obviously, of course, there were outliers, right? The Methuselah yeah. myth, and you, you name it. But for most of history, disease and a whole series of things impacted average lifespans. And it was really about 150 years ago as a result of innovations in medicine and sanitation and safety that things started to change really rapidly and radically. And I often describe this as the longevity paradox. So when you think of it, I consider, and I know a number of other people who agree with me, who consider the doubling of average human lifespans to be human beings greatest scientific achievement it's not going to it's not going to the moon it was the advent of antibiotics it was the creation of modern sanitation systems various other things that have changed this so here's this incredible accomplishment that all of us should be reveling in and realizing the benefits of we have these extra years this wonderful additional thing (laughs) that you and i both know is the most valuable thing we have and that's time and we have no idea what to do with it my way of describing this is that science has done its part and social science has failed yep so let me turn now to okay huge economic macro population demographic change Where are companies on this? I mean, you've ranked cities. You've done a lot of reports on the longevity economy, the opportunity for companies if they get on board with this new workforce. Is it working? Are they, did they react like the city mayors or the CEOs? Are they moving, embracing? Why or why not? Yeah, the answer is they are moving or some of them are moving, but very slowly. So some of them are understanding the impacts of the longevity economy, the potential for products and services and innovations for a population that's increasingly the dominant population, an older population, and certainly is the population that has the most financial resources. So it's just intuitive that if you're a marketer, if you're a product designer, if you're a if you're a salesperson, that this is the, the population that represents opportunity and we know it's underserved. So we see some more focus. And why on, is on, even that, that little nudge? so hard like why i think why you know don't, th- you know they have all the money they have all the numbers yeah. they have all the, and they're so you know they want to be such data-driven rational business people why so challenging to- uh, madison, madison avenue is still very very young people tend to see opportunity again through their own prism and while you can imagine that data should compel action the truth of the matter is is there's still a lot of negative age bias ageism uh, which is by the way seen by the world health organization and others as as a public health menace impedes all of us and it's it's external it's it's a societal view about the impacts of physical change and the impacts of cognitive change and the our changing capacity and energy and and, and all the rest. And it's internalized. Each one of us has it. If that wasn't the case of you, there not one woman in America would dye her hair other than gray or, or, or silver. Not one of us would, would ever see other than for reconstruction, a plastic surgeon. Anti-aging cosmetics and anti-aging terrible bread. Uh, treatments. I, think I think we're right. getting rid of them. I, right. <laughs> so I, and by the way, kind of back to your back to your question about, about do we see progress? So we've now seen, very thankfully, a couple women's magazines. We need more to bar the use of the words anti-aging in in ads because in cosmetic companies, right? And cosmetic creams. companies. Yep. So look, uh, age, ageism is is another paradox because it's loathing uh, loathing of our future selves. We <laughs> a very strange have, thing, isn't it? 
So if you had to suggest to the companies listening, the CEOs who might be yeah. Yeah. ready to embrace the, what, what are three things they should be prioritizing? I mean, let's keep it sort of simple. What should yeah. they now be focusing sure. on if they're just starting to look at this issue? I'll give you two. I'll make it even okay. even simpler. Thing one is they should focus on a way to recruit, retain, and engage older workers and to understand the benefits of intergenerational workforces. Laura Carstensen and I wrote a piece a few years ago on the emerging body of research that suggests that, that intergenerational teams outperform same-age teams of any age. So if you are a an innovator in the Silicon Valley and you have a skunkworks project, the most complex thing and the most potentially explosive thing that you have on your agenda, rather than putting two 65-year-olds who went to Stanford years and years ago and who've got a lot of experience on the project, or rather than taking your two smartest 27-year-old PhDs in computer science or, or physics or engineering, you take one of each yep. and you get the you get the energy and creativity and risk-taking characteristics, uh, risk-taking benefits of youth, and you get the wisdom and judgment and um, and cross-sector problem solving and opportunity creating characteristics of age wisdom, and really importantly, the the understanding of how to navigate environments, the politics of success, et cetera. So Thing one, aging populations, um, inter intergenerational engagement. Thing two, again, products, services, innovations. This is a massive, massive market. It's not just health, although health may be the biggest market. It's the biggest business, certainly in the United States anyway. So there are huge opportunities in health, but there are opportunities in leisure, in travel, in fashion, in housing, uh, Aviva, uh, something depending on a ARP's got some got some numbers that suggest roughly ninety percent of people say that they want to age in place, which fundamentally means age in their own homes. The Harvard Joint Center on Housing Studies, you should visit it when you're on campus, run by a guy named Chris Herbert, did some research a few years ago and, and found that about 1% of U.S. homes have the five most basic universal design elements. That basically means that every house in America yeah. is a potential opportunity for a contractor or a designer yeah. to reinvent. To that is a massive yeah. business opportunity. So human capital, resources, labor, Great opportunity, great talent, talent shift at number one. Number two, uh, products, services, in, in innovations that can drive economic growth and drive competitiveness in the future. And we'll put links to all the reports you just mentioned in the show notes for anyone great. who wants to hear more about that. So my last question and my last kind of area is moving from companies to the individual. What advice would you have for listeners who are just entering their third quarter. And when would you start, if you had to do it again, when would you start that phase? You said, Such, you know, my late 50s, yeah. I got the itch. If you had it to do it again. Yeah, I, I probably always had the itch. Um, let me, one of my donors uh, over the years, I, I won't name him because, because we're going to broadcast, but it's interesting. He's not somebody who is he's a very philanthropic person, but not somebody who has spent a lot of time in, in aging, but spent a lot of time in, in the world of entertainment. We were having a conversation about this on stage years ago, and I said to him, I asked him fundamentally the same question, man, kind of, how do we shift culture? How do we change our own attitudes? He gave what I thought was the world's greatest answer, so I'm going I'm to give, give it to you. And he said, when you meet a little child, a child of a friend, or maybe it's a grandchild of a friend, you know, what do you do? Uh, naturally, you kind of get down on their level and you engage in a conversation and you may ask them what they like. Do they like cars or do they like toys or 
what's interesting to them and um, you know what food do they like. And then inevitably, he said, there's a question that adults ask young, younger people. And the question is, and I'm going to ask you to fill it in, Aviva, what do you want to do when you grow up? Grow up. That's, and he said, it's the wrong question. And he said, the question should be, what do you want to do when you get old? And I just thought, oh my God, that is gen- that's genius. And we need, so when should we start thinking about it? It should be in children's books. Yeah. Uh, it, it should be in, in games. At one point, I was teasing someone. It's that true, because ageism that. starts at age three, though. I'd like somebody, if there's, if there's any, any one of your listeners who's a game developer, I am volunteering to, <laughs> to try to work with that person to acquire the rights to the game of life. Because I think that what we should be doing is having families sitting around the table, as they do playing Monopoly or playing cards, engaging in a, in a process that asks questions, both of young and old, about 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 stages, about what they want to do, how they want to plan. So we we should look forward to this uh, part of our life without fear. We should look forward to it as as a time when all the things that we've done, the mistakes we've made, the successes that that we've had, can kind of come together in in a new way and and lead to new relationships and new experiences and new new possibilities. And I think the challenge for us is to democratize that. That's the wonderful thing about a program like like the Harvard ALI program. You know that now there's a similar program at Stanford, the Stanford DCI program. And this is beginning to proliferate. The University of Texas has a program, University of Minnesota, Oxford in the UK. But this opportunity to kind of think about learning and think about this next stage should exist in every community college in the United yep. States and across Absolutely. the world and maybe in high school continuation programs. And, um, and we have to, I think, confront that own instinct that we have not to see our aging in a, in a negative light, to negative. see it in a positive Slowing light, so. down, kind of yeah. like, well, I, I, Paul, I really think you're an archetypal model of, of both what Harvard and Stanford and now the other list, uh, growing list of universities are trying to do to really take somebody from a Q2 of doing and being and proving and building to shift to this third quarter purpose, completely different environment. And I remember you mentioning that your entire social friend circle had also transitioned and become something entirely new. Look, I, I, think, I think what, one of the challenges for all of us is, is you kind of think about when you make friends in, in life, when you meet new people and you tend to do it in school and then yeah. you do it in work and you oftentimes do it if you have if you have children, you know, the children's yep. parents, friends. And like when you get to the time of retirement and you get to the time of pe- people beginning to die or people beginning to kind of peel off and go to other places, there's a danger of relationship networks shrinking. So I think putting yourself in a position where you have the opportunity to bump into new people who may share interests and fears is a powerful opportunity for all of us. And look, I would just say I've been really lucky and I feel blessed in many, in many ways. But these opportunities and, and these contributions, this service can really be done, be done by anyone. I mean, in the United States, we have a wonderful AmeriCorps seniors program that encourages people to volunteer. I'm, I'm actually working on helping the producers, writers, and others in a, in a PBS documentary that we're going to be putting out in a, in a couple of years on caregiving, on family family caregiving. And you yeah. know that all of us will end up being cared for and, and caring for others. So that role 
is such an important role and we need to support each other and to recognize the value that we bring as caregivers. So whether you were the president of the United States or somebody washing dishes in, in, in the back of a restaurant, you've got something to give in this, in this later time of life. And we should all recognize that we're very lucky to have you. And I think both of those changes can be, can be put to work in positive ways, not just for individuals and families, but for the broader society. So I can't resist closing with, you know, you've had such an interesting and accompanied transition into this Q3 phase of life. You're still a few ways away from what I call Q4. Which I may be in Q4. <laughs> you, may, you may be precociously. But have, you also, have you also, I mean, you've been watching this whole movement. What, what would be a similarly smart way to transition into Q4 or even just to start thinking about it and preparing. I'm just reading uh, Atul Gawande's Being Mortal. I'm doing That's a, a class book. on dying well. Um, yeah. What would you recommend for that subsequent phase that a lot of people just don't want to think about or talk about, including all my, interesting, all my ALI cohort is quite uncomfortable on the issue of age. They're thinking about age as something dealing with their parents, not with themselves. Look, uh, death rates remain consistent at 100%. We we, we will all get there sooner or later. And even my friends who are fascinated by the notion of radical extension of, of lives recognize that perpetual life is very unlikely. So we're all going to get there at, some, at some point. <laughs> I, I would recommend to any of your listeners that they took, take a look at my my friend Ellen Goodman's The Conversation Project, if, if they don't yep. know about it. It's something that Ellen started years ago when she recognized that people needed to have tabletop open tabletop conversations, family conversations about death and planning for it. So death will come and we shouldn't look at it as something that's that we, we don't want to talk about. But I would say equally, and I've actually challenged Ellen, Ellen on this. I've said you've done a fantastic job, you and, and various others, by, by the way, and a tool has been involved in that. We need to have a similar conversation project about getting old that's honest about it, that recognizes the physical challenges, that recognizes the losses and the sadness that oftentimes come, that comes and the, the risk of isolation and loneliness, but that also recognizes the, the joy and the appreciation of, of life and the possibilities of Eva of grandparenting, but uh, not just grandparenting bliss, our, our own bliss. children. Yeah, absolutely. But mentoring other, other young people who, who so appreciate interaction with people who weren't their parents. That that was an experience <laughs> that I recognized on campus. We're, we're very popular in the under five crowd, I've discovered. Absolutely. <laughs> that, that too. Any, anyway. So, 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 so I, want, I want you to leave us with um, a call to action. What could we do? What should we be doing? Everybody who's listening should. There's the issue of climate change. We should all be moving and shaking. What should we be doing on aging? First, we should be talking about it in the in the way we're talking more and more about climate climate change. I mean, talk ultimately is cheap, and talk requires action. But I think first, you have to educate people on the on the challenges and on the issues, the realities of the demographic shift, the challenges for older workers, the issue, the risks of isolation and loneliness, the need to invest in both curing and impeding dementia, but also the recognition that. While while dementia is is a is a massive risk, there's a massive number of older people who are cognitively healthy. So it's changing our changing our own attitudes. It's looking in the mirror. 
It's calling out those who uh, engage in ageist, ageist behavior. I see it more and more. I, I, bet, hair you gray, maybe? I, I bet you you do, you do too. So you see more and more times now when, when an ad appears on TV that somehow demean, demeans or insults old, older people where you and I, because you and I are both on social media, see people calling it out. Call it out. And guess what? Don't buy their products. If you're inclined to work longer, sit down with your employer or with your head of HR and talk about the possibility of transitional retirements, of part-time work, of, of work sharing, the kinds of things, by the way, that not only benefit older, older employees, but benefit young, younger people as well. Patronize media that tell the kinds of stories that we want to see told about older adults that, that make people realize that we are as complex, diverse, and important as any other population. So it's whether it's Grace and Frankie or the Kaminsky Method or Best Exotic Marigold Hotel or the Interim, or I could go on, there's an increasing interest in Hacks, by the way, a wonderful, if you haven't seen it, a wonderful sitcom, intergenerational, and an increasing number of, of shows that show older people in a, in a real way. Do you have life. a list of the shows? Is that uh, something you I, guys you know, have I don't published? In a, I don't in, in any formal way, but if people... I think that's uh, a great... I think if, that's a If people follow sense. me and follow, and follow others, they can, they can probably get a good sense. Go back to school. Go back to school. It's not scary. It's wonderful. And guess what? The young people will benefit from and you'll benefit from the opportunities to learn new things. There's just nothing better than that. And it doesn't matter what, you, what you've done in, in the past. This is the opportunity to, to spread wings and experience new things. And, tra- like and spread and, wings and experience new things. I think that's a, that's a wonderful metaphor for this phase. Thank you. Yeah. And again, I, th- I think the, the challenge for people like you and I is to make sure that the, that the ladder is not pulled up. That this is not just some something. These ideas, the ideas of new of school, the ideas of work, and the ideas of new challenge and new opportunities to contribute and to, and to serve are not just opportunities available to to the elites. That there are opportunities that exist across our society. And I'll also a- say aging that. is a very democratic. Uh, kind of process. So hopefully we can democratize well, it, the access to how to manage it as well. Access to how to manage it and frankly, and frankly to, to enable a very large population that's missing these additional years to benefit from them as, as well. In the United States, for example, the country I'm most familiar with, although I follow uh, global demography, we have people living 20 years different Absolutely. Uh, zip code is zip code. So it's wonderful for people who are educated and have some level of wealth to be able to work in new things or contribute in new ways or to return to edu- education for an extra 10 or 20 years. We need to make very sure that other people have the opportunity for healthy longevity that equals ours. Paula Irving, thank you so much for joining me on four quarter lives um, you've had you've had an astonishing first three quarters so i'm actually very curious i'm walking just behind you in your footsteps i will be very curious to see all the things you do next aviva it's a pleasure and i love i love reading all all that you post and i know that you're going to be a shining star as you emerge from the from the harvard ali flapping my wings <laughs> flapping your wings and experiencing new things and, uh, and I wish not only you, but I wish all of your listeners happiness and health and joy as, as they age and to be able to recognize the, the possibilities and potential of this time of life. Beautiful. Thank you, Paul. Until next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining this conversation about Four Quarter Lives. 
where we're designing lives that don't just get longer, but better. For more, you can follow my columns at Forbes or read my own account of a year back at school at Harvard in my newsletter on Substack called Elderberries. <laughs>